0: Esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the greatest book ever written. Uh, And it is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, you can get your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Once you've enjoyed that, come see me with money for the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. And get ready, because June 14th, uh, Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy will be available, and that'll round out the trilogy. Uh, under the super-secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as my young adult novel, Altogether Now, a Zombie Story, uh, which I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. Uh, Because it's about an an apocalypse set in Indiana, and I live in Indiana, and so I may indeed get to see just how close my imagined apocalypse uh, matches up to the real thing. Uh, I've also got The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is nuts. If you're curious, you can dip your toe in. Uh, You can download The Book of David, Chapter 1, by Robert Kent. For free as an ebook, Whenever you're watching or listening to this. Wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, if you check the back catalog a few episodes. I also recorded my own audio book. For the first time ever. And that is available for free. You don't even have to read the book of David chapter 1. You can listen to me read it to you. Uh, and if you like that. Come see me with money for chapters two, three, four, and 5. As always. Keep up with what's going on with the show. What's going on with me at MiddleGradeNinja.com. Log in there, you can read hundreds of interviews with literary agents, authors, editors, publishing professionals, folks that would be of interest to you. Uh, and that's it for the announcements. Tonight, I couldn't be more thrilled. I am chatting with Anne Nesbitt, and we're gonna be discussing her new book, Daring Darlene, Queen of the Screen. Anne, how are you this evening?
1: I'm pretty good, All all, all things considered. I mean, we have a beautiful spring happening here in California. I think maybe the nicest spread of poppies we've ever had. Uh, So it's okay. And we've got uh, five people in the house, three of them home from college for quarantine and sheltering in place and the dog. And so it's busy and lively and never dull.
0: That's excellent. Um, And um, we're getting started just a little bit late tonight because my my six-year-old Uh, is adjusting to his new routine of no school uh, and stayed awake just a little bit later than usual and we can't have him in the background. (laughs) So now hopefully, knock on wood, he is uh, sleeping soundly and we're going to be all right. Uh, So probably a good place to start is I try never to summarize other people's books or other people's biographies because I'm terrible at both. Uh, And why would you want to listen to me tell you about you when you're right there and could tell esteemed audience about yourself? Uh, So if you would give esteemed audience uh, an overview of your background.
1: Well, I'm um, somebody who teaches. I teach two different, I'm in two different departments. I'm in the film and media department at Berkeley, and I'm also in the Slavic department, teaching Russian literature. So I have a kind of Russia hat, and I have a film studies, film history hat. Um, And then I have a third hat, which is the one I guess I'm wearing right now, which is uh, writing books for kids. So Daring Darlene, Queen of the Screen is my sixth book for the middle grade audience. And uh, the first three were Fantasies, The Cabinet of Verse and Box of Gargoyles, and The Wrinkled Crown, and they came out with Harper Collins. And then I've done three historical novels with Candlewick: Cloud and Wallfish, which was a friendship and spying novel set in East Berlin in 1989, and then The Orphan Band of Springdale, which is set in 1941 in rural Maine, and is about family secrets and music. And then um, the new one, Daring Darlene. Queen of the Screen, which is set in 1914 in the Hollywood of its day, which was Fort Lee, New Jersey.
0: So you are a well-rounded person of many talents, it sounds like. You do a little bit of everything.
1: Many activities, anyway, right? Many. I'm busy. It's true.
0: Was that uh, that always the plan, was to do a little bit of everything, or have you just kind of fallen into it as uh, time has gone on?
1: I think it's more, you know, you you follow... There are certain strands that run through your life and you follow them. And sometimes you hang on to that thread and sometimes you're sort of forgetting and you're hanging on to another one. But um, I was always writing stories from childhood on and I started being more serious about it, I guess, when I started teaching and then eventually... Um I had a stroke of a couple strokes of good fortune and the and I found um an editor who is interested in my first book and never stopped after that.
0: Well, esteemed audience loves a good uh, origin story, so let's let's start there. How when when did you write your first book and how did you go about having this uh
1: Good okay, story. so the first book has quite a story to it. Um, I was on sabbatical, in, and we, we were living in Paris, and um, I took the family, you know, we all went, and we lived there for the year, and I threw the the girls cruelly into the local public schools, and the twin school was right across the street from a library and right... Kitty corner from this incredible building that had vines growing over it and um, heads of cows holding up the balcony and so on and so forth. Just amazing um, building from the early 20th century. And I looked at that and I thought, huh, I'm pretty sure that uh, that's the kind of place wizards and magicians would live. And so I wrote a book called The Cabinet of Earth. And I'd been, this was the fourth, right, the fourth novel I'd written. The first two were science fiction for grown-ups and, or I thought for grown-ups, and the third one, which I was still also finishing at this time, was just for, just for grown-ups. And um, the first two had never, never been picked up by anybody, although I'd had, you know, nice comments and so on. But... This time I was like, okay, I'm going to do this seriously. And so I joined the local chapter of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and they had a really wonderful Paris chapter, actually. And one day the the editor, Rosemary Brosnan from HarperCollins, she's a fantastic person and fantastic editor, she came to Paris to talk to our group, only um i had they, she had let's see she was supposed to like talk to a couple of us on um, one-on-ones at various points and a friend of mine called up who was running things and said and and i'm everybody's canceled blah, blah 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 would you mind meeting with her uh right now <laughs> instead of you know with everybody else tomorrow and i was like oh ah, okay so i walked over <laughs> to this um, cafe where i'm supposed to meet with her And then somebody comes out who was the one who was supposed to meet with her before, and says, "Uh, "You know what? She's really sick right now." I said, "Oh, okay, okay." So, so she's asking if you'd come up to her hotel room to have your meeting. So I said, "Okay." So then we have this amazing scene in a teeny tiny Paris hotel room with poor Rosemary Brosnan in in the bed. Looking very very green, and me perched in the little chair, and I handed her the opening chapters of *A Cabinet of Verse*, and she was like reading them and laughing, and I thought, oh okay, I would like try to notice where she was laughing, and then she said, um, "I don't usually say this, but when you're done, uh, send this send this to me." And so that was really the beginning. Um, actually, she got sicker and ended up in the hospital. The next day, so if i hadn 't met her then, I would not have at all but um, she she was wonderful and that w- and eventually that 's the book that became my first published uh, children 's book two thousand twelve so some years after our hotel room encounter
0: <laughs> how, how many years later was that
1: um, I guess that was in two thousand and uh, 2008, so four years later.
0: So that must have been quite the amazing experience that she comes out of the hospital. She's like, whew, I'm so glad that that's over and I've, I've survived because now I need to reach out to Ann Nesbitt and I have to get this book.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if the timeline was exactly like that, but, um, but certainly I felt incredibly fortunate. And I've been incredibly lucky in um, all of my... Editors, I have to say, I think editors are the most amazing people on earth. They are, they they read things with such love and precision, and I just it's just an incredible thing. When I talk to students, I often show um, pictures of the of an editorial letter that I've gotten, and actually any of my editorial letters would do because they've all been like. 13 14 pages long single spaced you know and then they'll start with oh and you know this I, this is so wonderful this is going to be so great and you know that lasts for you know two sentences and then you get 12 pages of <laughs> <laughs> everything that's wrong and all the holes and all the gaps and um and the students are always groaning right when i show them like 13 page editorial letters. And then I say, no, it's this incredible gift of love. If somebody is paying that close attention to something that you're making, um, it's an incredible gift. So I, I actually really, um, appreciate editors and teachers, <laughs> anybody who gives uh, revision advice is a hero in my book. Anybody who reads things closely.
0: And I assume that usually you don't have to sit there nervously while they while they read your book.
1: No, that was a one-off. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that might be one of the most terrifying things I've ever heard. I'm okay with a 13, 14 page editorial letter, but sitting there and, and, and watching an editor go through your manuscript. I you know, must have I know.
1: somebody who you know. Um, is experiencing nausea at that moment right yeah that is that is very nerve-wracking it's true
0: and do is your editor usually the first person to see your manuscript or who gives you notes and revision prior to an editor
1: oh that's a good question it really it really um it really varies so uh, right now I'm working with um, Kaylin Adair. She was the editor for all three of my Candlework books, including Daring Darling, And um, she is incredible. She, uh, she, um, oh, what can I say? There was this period uh, towards the end of revising Daring Darlene where we were kind, she was like reading things and I was, trying to fix them and, and it, we were, things were going back and forth across the continent and, and this was happening in real time, which is of course rare in the editing situation because generally speaking, what happens is you get your uh, 13 pages of comments and then you spend ages wrestling with them to make it work out and then you send, hopefully, your revised version, you hope that it's better, off um, to the editor, and then, you know, ages later, she has time to look at it, and so on. But uh, there was one particular phase with Daring Darlene, where we were under the gun, and, you know, had to get this absolutely um, sealed up in a few days, and that was really, I think, the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. But I mean, just in so who sees it first? I mean, sometimes the sometimes um, my agent, Amy Joan Paquette, will uh, be looking at things and give advice too. There's another person who has a really keen eye for sort of seeing the heart of something and what you're trying to do. Uh, so it sort of depends where we are in the process, who sees something first.
0: So curious, uh, you say it's the most fun you've ever had. Um, what, what was it that made that experience so enjoyable?
1: Well, I think it's that, you know, one of the things that's wonderful about writing is feeling a universe fall into place, right? So all these little bits fall, come together. It's really this incredible anti-entropic, uh, miracle, um, when, you know the jigsaw puzzle is beginning you know you're at first it's really hard you're putting things in you're trying to figure out where things go and then at some point you are kind of putting in the pieces uh faster and you feel like oh yeah this is this is how it was supposed to be i don't know exactly what gives us that feeling of um something being already pre-formed that you're just discovering but i think a, a lot of people who write or, or probably do all sorts of different kinds of artistic things have that sense. At some point, you, know, you get it and you go, oh, okay, it's sort of like this. Um, it's, it's deceptive because of course you never write. Like you're never, in t- you, you're, you're caught into this, in this wave of thinking that you're being kind of led towards this wonderful thing. But when you get there, you realize you're actually just at the next starting line or making it better, but okay. But that that moment of being um, caught up in something and just being absorbed in this other world and figuring out how everything is going to go and how the sentences are gonna look and what words you're going to use and what should happen there and why did she do that? All of that, um, I find just incredibly thrilling. I always say, I'm, I'm never I'm never really happy unless I'm living in more than one world at a time. So I have to be in at least two different worlds to be happy. And reading was how I did that when I was a kid. That would let me live in more world than one. And, um, and then at some point I realized as a child that you could, you could read, you could write something, and it was, felt like reading. So you would write a story for yourself and it would feel like you were reading that story and I think that's when I became hooked.
0: Of course you're uh, reading the story that happens to go exactly the way you would most like for it to go <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, it
1: doesn't quite feel that way though, right? Because because there's so much uncertainty and and so much um you know, you just I don't know. It always it feels a little more high wire than than, than being a closed circle where you're like, oh, I'll just make up the story I want to hear. I think it's, uh, you know, often people talk about whether people are um, plotters or pantsers, whether they plot things out carefully ahead of time or, or do everything by the seat of their pants or something. And, and uh, I've always felt it's both. I plot, I plot a lot. I, every book starts with a notebook and there's just, you know, this notebook... Took a long time. You can see it's kind of worn out. That was my Daring Darlene notebook. So I plot, 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 plot. And then I write a draft. But even while I'm writing that draft, it turns out that plotting is a bit of a, a you know an illusion because you're still really out there trying to fly over the abyss. You know, it's you have to make up things as you go. It's never quite as certain as, oh, I've set everything out. And so now it's just automatic. So I think that's what also makes this sense of reading and writing close for me. That I'm reading, when I'm reading, I don't know where the story is going to go. When I'm writing, I thought I knew where the story was going to go, but I didn't actually. And so there's this sense of just reading very slowly.
0: So how much time are you spending with with the notebook plotting before you actually start your draft um, it,
1: well the notes the notebooks always they carry on so I will keep I, I keep I will keep using I will keep writing in the notebook as I go so I do a lot of plotting in the notebook and I start writing and then I have to come back and replot and think and you know do bits of research and all the rest and then I'm and then I'm writing again and then I'll be sending off a draft and getting it back. And with the 13 page previously described editorial letter and the letter will say, um, this, this is, Oh, this is fine. This is fine. It just needs a plot and a character that we care about and stakes or something like this, you know, <laughs> in other words. Sure, just those little And so, things. and so then, you know, you go back, you weep and you go back to the notebook and, You start figuring out how to solve those problems. So so I guess the the notebook is a – it starts before I start drafting, but then it's a constant companion through. And it really varies how long I'm just in notebook phase before I start drafting. Part of that depends on um, where we are in the teaching year.
0: So how long – uh, on average, does it take you to get from the start of that notebook to uh, approaching a, a finished draft? Because I know, obviously, publishing gets involved. You can't necessarily control the, the timeline past a certain point. But by the right. time you're turning in a a, a a draft that's ready for that 13-page letter, what's our <laughs> time?
1: Right. Um, yeah, well, I look back at this notebook just to see when, when I started. And I started um, in September of 2017 um plotting out Daring Darlene and so here it is spring of 2020 and we we had some uh you know delays that weren't anybody's fault and so on so that's actually in in my writing history that's pretty speedy actually I think um once I'm at the point where I'm just drafting I can draft, you know, like once I've got a first draft, I think, I think I have it plotted out. I'm always wrong. I'm always wrong. <laughs> but I think that I know how it's supposed to go and et cetera. Okay. Then usually I can do a draft of that in the first draft in like six weeks or something. But, but you know, that's the first draft. And then that's not one that I'm yet Uh, you know, sending off to people for 13-page letters. And then there's, you know, the reworking, the reworking, the going back to this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's only when it's been through a lot of iterations Um, does it go off to one of the people who, you know, whose opinion really matters.
0: And are you going straight to your literary agent first or who gets first crack at it? Uh,
1: Actually, that depends on whether the, whether the book is under contract or not. So, ah, makes sense. yeah. So with, um, with, uh, Cloud and Wallfish, for instance, um, there, uh, my agent saw it first and then it went to, to, uh, and Adair and then, but, but then Candlewick had bought that plus another book. And that book, the second one, was only like one sentence mentioned on a phone call uh, when it, when at the time it was contracted. So there I was, starting, I was starting sort of from scratch and so on. And so that draft went to um, Kalyn earlier than it would otherwise have gone.
0: And now that you've been working with the same editor, you said for about for three books now? Yeah. Uh, at this point, is your relation, do you have kind of a, a comfortable shorthand between you? Has that sped the process up a little bit?
1: Oh, I think so. I think, you know, part of working with anybody is um, is is sort of figuring out uh, the methods that work best for interacting. And so, you know, like even little things like how... How is, how, is most, how is editing most effective? Like what kinds of comments are most effective and so on? It, some of this doesn't happen consciously necessarily, but you sort of work that out together. And also uh, whenever you work with um, wonderful editors, and I've been so lucky, as I said, to have worked with a few of them, um, you, you internalize a lot of their lessons. And so you're thinking as you're writing and as you're redrafting, you're already thinking, oh, what would Rosemary or Kaelin, what would they say about this? You know, what would they want here? And so you're in a way already anticipating the things that they would would say in a 13-page letter. Which just doesn't mean that you don't get a 13-page letter full of complaints, but it means maybe the complaints are slightly um, higher level than they would Look, four or
0: five, maybe you'll get it down to 11 pages. Who knows?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that happy day? I don't know.
0: (laughs) And it seems like it would be almost unfair for for Kayla to have to work with another author. She's got you uh, pretty well
1: uh, trained. (laughs) You know uh, what to do. (laughs) <laughs> I guess she's got she's got a bunch of us pretty well trained at this point, yeah. And
0: I know, uh, obviously, uh, and I, I should mention what is today. Today is April 28th. Anytime I mention that we are in quarantine, I feel, because the news moves so fast, I feel compelled to explicitly state that we are recording this April uh, 28th. We don't know about all the things that have come along in the news uh, since you and I talked. Uh, just uh, what earlier today. The uh, Pentagon confirmed the release of a video of flying saucers, and it barely made uh, headlines because we've got bigger issues right now. So that is where we're at in, in, at this time. But prior to quarantine, what did your usual writing schedule look like for the week?
1: Yes. Well, since I'm a full-time teacher, um, it looked like those those chunks of time that I could carve out of my teaching and teaching and grading and preparing schedule. So it really varies. And it depends on where I am in a particular project. Like once something is comes, gets underway, if I'm in the middle of drafting or if I'm in the middle of revising, then, um, then of course it has a kind of energy and momentum of its own. And so I have to, you know, I just have to do that every day. Uh, But, Sometimes the, um, sometimes the teaching, which is all, you're very, I mean, it keeps you very busy. Sometimes that has to be sort of the dominant thing, and then I'm stealing my moments to keep, to keep going. But as I said, I have to, I have to always be living in more worlds than one. And so if I do not write, uh, I become miserable.
0: You it's you a gradual
1: goals? decline, but I do become miserable.
0: Well, okay. You set uh, goals for yourself on a daily basis, like a word count, or is it really just kind yeah,
1: well, of again, it depends on where I am, you know what it is that I have to do. If I'm drafting something, I do i I like to do first drafts on Scrivener because you get the lovely um, uh, progress bar that goes from red to green. And I'm just like Pavlov's dog. <laughs> I love seeing it go from red to green, and I'm very motivated to get it to go from red to green every day, and so on and so forth. So, so yes. Yeah, so for something like that, um, yes. Then I have a then I have a goal, and um, I'm pretty, pretty regularly meeting that goal, and so on and so forth. If I'm in the a different period, if I'm doing research uh, and plotting. Then of course it's still a thrilling process i really enjoy it but the how you measure how much you've accomplished is more nebulous because you can get swept up in some in considering some a, small aspect of something that may not even actually survive the editing process of the book but feels very important at the time as you're tracking it down and Reading all the newspapers from nineteen fourteen, you know, et cetera.
0: And so, on a day when you've got a full class load, uh, you've got to be mostly focused on 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 that. Um, what? How much are you able to to sneak in?
1: Uh, so again, it de- it depends on what I'm what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to sneak in, where I am in the process. If I'm in the drafting, or you know, the the thrilling revising process, I will sneak in the day's quota of whatever I have to do no matter what. Um, if it's, but, uh, but of course, that, it, it's hard. It's really hard during the semester. And as the semester goes on, it gets harder because once you're grading papers, um, everything slows down. Grading is incredibly hard.
0: What I'm uh, hoping for is a little sound bit I can play for my fiction workshop students who send me emails that ah, I was just too busy today. I, I couldn't get to it. And I want to say no. And Nesbit had a full class load and she still managed to do blank. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, that's right. I mean, sometimes I do. But, you know, as I said it It has its own reward because it, it it makes life worth living. it keeps me happy it's um it's incredibly rewarding in its own right, so yeah, so it doesn't feel that's not the part of writing that feels like a slog at in those phases. The parts that are hard are when um when you feel stuck some somewhere or you or you become sort of super. Uh, critical of everything you do or, or you kind of lose or you start thinking actually I guess part of it is whenever you're thinking more about the business of writing um, that saps a certain kind of energy from you and it becomes depressing <laughs> but when you're when you're thinking about the creative thing itself that you're working on the world that you're building and all of that then that that gives you energy, and so that's not something, I'm I'm not ever blocked about that. I just, you know, sometimes it can be, sometimes you just feel like, oh, you feel hopeless, or, you know, will I ever have another good idea? Or, you know, will I ever have time? And actually, you know, of course, you're never going to have time, really. But But if you have something that you're in the middle of. If you can get into the middle of something, then it makes its own time for you.
0: Makes sense. I love that idea of will I ever have another good idea? Because what if someone could definitively say to you, no, you've had all the good ideas. What do you do then? (laughs) You're going to keep
1: trying. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and we've all had so many ideas that we've never done anything with. So I suppose... I suppose if if some um evil magic goblin came and said to me, You you'll never have another new idea again, I would immediately be parsing that in my favor by saying, Okay, 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 what are the loopholes here? I guess the loopholes have to be. I still get to work with the ideas that I had, you know, all through the rest of my life. Um, And so those aren't new. And after all, really nothing's new under the sun. So if I come up with something, but someone else had that idea in the 16th century, I guess I'm good with that too, right? Goblin. So, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess we can't, um, we can't be overly dependent on, on inspiration, on trusting in inspiration.
0: I tell you, at that point, you should immediately sit down and write a novel about the evil goblin. Oh, my God. Tell the world. <laughs>
1: <This is happening. laughs> right. The, go- the depressing. Yeah. The, the anti-writing goblin. Right. Telling you all these absolutely horrible things. That's true. I could do that.
0: And uh, you mentioned that you had, you said, I think three books uh, before you had the fourth one that you were able to take to the sick editor in Paris and, and get that sold. Yeah. Uh, so what happened with those? Are those on a shelf someplace? Have you cannibalized them for other stories?
1: Um, well, two of them, two of them were these science fiction uh, novels. And I'm, I will always be very fond of them. And I have, I have friends who love them. <laughs> So that's good. I think so they have they have their little small set of readers. That's probably what they'll have. I I think I will end up doing science fiction at some point again. Um and then the third one the third one I think I might return to that actually. I really love that book. And I never did anything with it. I never really showed it to people or anything.
0: So, so. So there isn't yet at least one more Anne Nesbitt book out there just waiting to be discovered. Be excited, world! It's coming. No,
1: I hope there are more than that. But you know, most of them would be kids' books. This is this one for grown-ups uh, that I that I would like to go back and uh, polish up sometime.
0: So now we've covered, and we're gonna pivot to. Uh, daring Darlene, because I'm always watching our time, and I know uh, editors, uh, publicists, agents are listening and they say, oh my god, talk about the book. Not to worry, we will talk about the book, but we've covered your routine in normal times. So for all of those authors listening who are struggling to find um, a way to, to get on with some sort of um, normality here in, in quarantine, what has your quarantine experience been like thus far? How are you finding time to write
1: Um, yes, I do think, I think, I think this being in quarantine is, is really hard. I I mean, it's especially hard for people with young children. They're absolutely, I, I'm in awe of all the people with young kids, but for everybody, I think the hard thing is being in the middle of this difficult situation and not knowing how the story ends. We don't know what happens next. We don't know where we're gonna be in a week or a month or two months. Um, And I think just fretting about that means that your brain is, some percentage of your brain is really busy telling yourself stories that are about the current catastrophe and where it might be going and so on, right? And that takes a lot of energy and a lot of creative energy and a lot of brain energy we'd all be better off if we didn't do it, probably. If we could just like, whoop, you know, I'm in my house, I don't know why. Uh, But but that's hard to achieve. So I think a certain amount of kindness for ourselves as uh, writers. I know as a teacher, everything is harder doing it online. And as a writer, even though maybe the basic um, aspects of writing are the same, about the computer you're fi- finding a little corner to hide in and then you're typing away that's not changed that much but we have to get we have to have compassion for ourselves because of that 40 percent of our brain that's busy 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 worrying and making up um, unhelpful stories about the future so yeah that would I would say when things are hard writing gets harder with everything else on the other hand the effect of actually doing something creative is enhanced. I mean doing something creative as as medicine. I think it's really the best the best medicine out there. The world is sort of falling apart it's so it feels. Um, but if you are putting a story together or making something beautiful or making something work, uh, that, is incredibly healing. Again, it has that feeling of sort of shaking your fist at entropy and saying, okay, everything's falling apart out there, but this little bit of life, you know, I can still make a world.
0: I have found myself being just a little bit crueler to my characters than I normally am uh, because I need them to have really bad problems to completely distract me from the actual problems that are
1: going <laughs> Well, yeah um I went through this period where it seemed like every time I wrote about a um, mother in a book, um something terrible would happen to her, and then that would happen in real life and and um my kids were like Mom uh you gotta you gotta you gotta be a little bit kinder to the mothers, so I promised that only nice things would happen to mothers in my stories from then on. This was not true, however. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly true so I don't know I mean maybe I maybe being extra cruel make that makes sense actually I can see that also wanting not to be as cruel as usual, you know like wanting some nice things to happen also makes sense under the circumstances like I can see why a person might want to be reading books that um Have happy endings right now. I can also see why you might want to read books in which you know the zombies do take over and tear everything apart. So, yeah, both. As I said, I'm really—I don't know if I said it, but I was thinking it. I'm really omnivorous in what I what I read. So, and and that spills over into the writing. So I can see it, I can see it both ways being darker and lighter at this time.
0: Uh, if you read about zombies, um, then you can be a little bit grateful that thus far, again, April 28th, as uh, when we're recording this. So if the zombie apocalypse starts May 1st, we don't know about it yet. But thus far, no zombies, so it looks something to be a little bit grateful for.
1: <laughs> well, I've honestly never quite un- understood the science of zombies. So I would want to read more studies about how that all works because it does seem to me that I, it's hard for me to understand how you can be um, so overrun by creatures that literally falling apart as they, as they decay. But maybe I've misunderstood something about decay <laughs> <laughs> or, or zombie force or something like that.
0: Ah, there's so many different versions of the zombie apocalypse to so try and grab any one of them. Uh, my favorite type of zombie story usually is one that avoids the origins of the zombies because there's no origin you're going to tell me that convinces me the zombies are real. Just get to the part where they chase our heroes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I was just um, actually teaching Justine Ireland's Dread Nation, and oh. there she has the, the zombies. They rise up. They rise up um, during a battle in the civil war and the meta the metaphorical side of that makes so much sense that um who cares about the science really <laughs> that's true
0: <laughs> okay well here here's our official pivot then so what is it like launching a book now uh in the time of quarantine
1: well it's really it it's <laughs> it's very sad. You know, the thing is, as a writer, you know, you, you, you produce a book with all the people who are working to make it beautiful and to do things like on the, you know, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a, there's a film strip on the back spine of this book. Little details like that. I, you know, they're amazing. Okay. So all this effort goes into making this amazing thing. And And you let go of it maturely, as one must, because as soon as it's out there, it's out of your hands. But you let go of it only the same way that you let go of your children when they go off to college or out in the world, which is to say that you still hope very much that they do okay, You know, they find their way, and all the rest. And so I always feel this um, great sense of responsibility for the poor book, you know, I I want the poor book to be okay, and of course to emerge into the world um, at a time when they're, you know, when all the poor all the bookstores are closed and the libraries are closed, and of course the libraries are open um, online and doing amazing things there, and uh, many of the little independent bookstores I love are online and selling things online, but of course that's not the same thing as. People being able to go into a space and browse and pick it up and look and see and decide whether they like it or not. So it is one of those. You know, I don't know that there. I don't think there's a bright side <laughs> to coming out uh, during the apocalypse. Um, but what can you do? I mean, these things. These things happen. I had something like nine events set up. I'm. I'm an introvert, so. I'm shy, so it was scary for me to reach out and set things up. And I was very proud of the way I had done it, <laughs> but they all went poof.
0: So, so what uh, what things have you found uh, other than appearing on this amazing podcast? Obviously, uh, all you need really. But other than that, what 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 things have you found to do to promote well, the book?
1: Blue- so people started saying, um, "Oh, Anne, could you make a little video?" So I made a, I made a little video about the historical research that went into Daring Darlene, and I made um, I made a book trailer that I really am proud of because it has a sort of old-timey feel to it. It looks sort of like a silent movie, but it has little splashes of color in it. And um, and then I'm going to be a, a participant in the Everywhere Book Fest in my future, your future, but the past for whoever's uh watching us on the podcast um that's that's may for uh, may 1st may 2nd at so the end of what is the current week for us um and that'll be fun we're talking i'm on a panel with sayantani dasgupta and jay anderson Coates, and we're talking about science versus magic in our books and we have a duel going on so that was fun but um but that of course takes so much more work than doing something live I mean because as you know very well the thing about doing things that you record is that you have to kind of know where you're what you're doing then there's always a lot of editing that comes into it and it's not it's not easy and even though I teach film I'm not a filmmaker so I teach film history so uh editing and all that. I have an idea. I have sort of a high bar that I couldn't possibly reach and that I kind of know what it should look like if it were good. But <laughs> actually doing it myself turns out to be a real skill set that I don't have. So it takes an enormous amount of work for me to produce something that looks like it was made by, you know, squirrels with twigs or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there are things going online and I think oh another thing that I was going to be doing was the Bay Area Book Fest. And I think that they're going to be putting some things online as well. Um, and there are other events that um, again, are saying, "Oh, we'll do something. We'll do something online." But it's not the same as being in rooms with people who love reading. And actually, I'm just sorry also that I didn't get to do my traditional book sync uh, book launch party. I always think of a good cookie to bake, you know, that's, that's again, I'm not, that's not my skill set either. So I'm not saying that these cookies are absolutely delicious, but they are traditional. And I always try to find a theme that would go with whatever the book was. And so this time I was like, got it. This one is super easy. I can just do rectangular cookies and they will look like frames of a film. I'll put the little sprocket holes in frosting on the side And then I can do uh, my favorite frame. Again, you will not probably be able to see it. Can you see it with the three exclamation points? Sure. Uh I was like, okay, I can do that. Even I can frost three exclamation points. And there you go. So that was, that. I was looking forward to that. But those cookies. cookies
0: and, and, And now you will have to share them. So bonus. (laughs)
1: Now I can't even find flour, so I can't make the cookies. But um, I'm hoping that at some point I'll have like a belated, you know, just as my kids who are graduating from college with no graduation ceremony are hoping that they'll get to do one later, uh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to do a kind of after-the-fact, you know, book launch. Time machine book launch. (laughs) Whenever we uh, emerge from our houses again and dance in the streets
0: yeah no we'll have uh, we'll have a solid week of, of never coming home just out <laughs> <opening your> <laughs> except
1: I don't think it's going to work that way I, at least the messages I'm getting from time machines suggest it's not going to be quite there isn't going to be one moment where we say hooray 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 we're out so no, we'll see. but maybe not. in a year I could have a kind of a year later book party.
0: No, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, struggling desperately to try to put some optimistic spin on a situation for which there really isn't one. Um, but the alternative is just to sink down and go, oh, Lord, take me now. <laughs> that's not... That's not well,
1: blood. you know, reading is still important. <laughs> Stories are still important. Books are still important. And... Um, and the apo- this particular apocalypse is not going to last forever. So, you know, in a couple years, people will be back to bookstores, and I mean, before that, I certainly hope. But, but you know, this is not forever. This is just uh, a hard, a hard period. But you know, the books that I, books that I write often are about. They're set in times that are difficult, that are hard. Um, in Cloud and Wallfish, which is the one set in East Germany in 1989, you know the main character realizes that he's living in history, and that's not—that's actually not that much fun when you find yourself living in history. It's often pretty hard. And so I would say to kids when I visit schools, you know, we're all living in history right now. And I was saying that even before the virus hit. Oh, sure, last um, few years we've all been
0: living in uh, an incredible period of American history. Yes, we are. It's busy. Assuming there is a presidency after this, and I'm no longer convinced that's such a swell idea, because if this can happen again, maybe we need to find a new system. But assuming that we, we can, we can say, well, yeah, no, I, I was there for the worst that uh, the presidency had to offer. I remember living through that. Uh, that's that's There's my optimistic spin. All of us authors will be able to write um, much more authentically about our characters living through hard times. That's the spit shine I've got for it.
1: I think so. I mean, you know, it probably changes the way that we read books and think about things. Um, I know it changes it for me. I keep reading these books and I'm like, oh gosh, they're, they're, having, they're playing together. They're, they're going places together. Or, um, did they just hug each other in that book? And things like this. Because suddenly you're, you're, you're aware of um, social distancing rules, even for fictional characters, even for fictional characters living in a time that is not this one
0: don't shake hands you'll all die oh no
1: (laughs) Yeah, don't shake hands don't touch things as my kids said about our dog you know poor thing she doesn't realize she's a surface because she keeps wanting to go up and say hello to people and uh you know she's a surface so we haul her back well, let us
0: uh, turn our attention to 1914. By golly, I've got some, some questions for you about this wonderful book. So we'll, we'll talk about the past when there's no social distancing, there's there's no COVID-19. By God, uh, they didn't know how good they had it. <laughs> 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 uh, so well, they had other uh,
1: difficulties on the way.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, as, as, as this book illustrates many. Um So I promise not to summarize your book and spoil it and do a terrible job. I I would never do that to you. If you would, please tell esteemed audience uh, a little bit about uh, Daring Darlene.
1: So Daring Darlene is about a girl named Darling who has just grown out of her first career, which was as a star, as a sort of child star in silent films, where she would be made adorable. And then she was Darling Darlene. And now she's outgrown that L. And she's become daring Darlene and she's the heroine uh, in adventure serials, which were actually um, an incredibly uh, popular fad in the, um, in the teens. So uh, it, was, it was this amazing moment where film was becoming a big business and it was learning how to keep people strung along in a story. And they wanted to get people to come back to the theaters again and again, week after week, week after week to see the films. And so they thought, oh, you know what we'll do, we'll serialize things. So we'll have adventures that stretch out over many, many short films. Sometimes those adventures would be complete in one episode and then you'd wait and you'd get another episode that sort of told a different story. And often they would have cliffhangers at the end Um, So that you would come back for the next episode. And these were incredibly popular in the teens. So you had things like the perils of Pauline and the hazards of Helen. So my character, Darlene, is in The Dangers of Darlene. And it's being filmed in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which was sort of, you could call it the Hollywood of its day. Hollywood Already existed a little bit in nineteen fourteen but it was not yet absolutely completely dominant. It would become so pretty pretty soon after this book actually because actually because of World War I, um, which is going to start after the end of this story but then it became even more pressing to get to the warm um, Californian shores where there was light all year round and you didn't have to use a lot of coal to heat your studios. So New Jersey did not look anywhere as good um, once coal became a shortage during the war. Anyway, so her family is at a studio in Fort Lee called Matchless Studios, which is a name I'm incredibly proud of having thought up. There were lots and lots of different movie studios in Fort Lee and one of them did have the name Peerless. And so I'm kind of riffing on that for matchless, but then there's a pun because the thing about movie studios is that just like the Scarecrow, they the one thing they really were worried about was a lighted match. Um, they were incredibly flammable places. They had chemicals going and celluloid film was incredibly flammable and the whole thing was very dangerous. And every now and then these studios would burn down. So my studio is called Matchless. And, um, and she's making these adventure serials and her, her extended family that's busy working at the studio decides that what they want to do to get people to come and see the films is they're going to stage a fake kidnapping of Darlene at the opening of a big theater, the Strand Theater in New York City in April, 1914. Historical, really happened. This is the opening of the theater part. Um, so completely plausible. Um, anyway, and of course the fake kidnapping goes awry and turns into a real kidnapping and she ends up being really kidnapped with a um, an heiress named Victorine. And even though they have just completely different backgrounds and so on, the two girls have to work together and do all sorts of actual sort of stunts and so on to get themselves out of the clutches of the kidnappers and get back to the movie studios and be making the next episode of the adventure serial while continuing to avoid and eventually trap kidnappers. So that's, that's the, that's the story. It's basically meant to be a little bit of a, an echo of the old adventure serials. I try to have, Um, cliffhanger endings in the of the chapters you know it it wants to keep going at a certain clip Um, they get to do all sorts of adventures on the screen and off all sorts of uh, all sorts of stunts I'm really interested in um, silent film tricks I teach film history I teach the early part of film history and one of the things I love most is seeing students amazed by the kinds of special effects that silent film could produce, even though they did not have post-production, they did not have computers. And uh, in the early days, all of those special effects had to be done in the camera. So you had to be doing those special effects somehow while you were running your camera, making the film. And that's inc- incredibly hard to do. So in that class, we do a lot of looking at things and then I'll say, okay, how'd they do that, right? How'd they do that? And we'll try to figure out how they did that. And so there's a lot of that that comes up in um, Daring Darlene, because those uh, film tricks are just so much fun. I couldn't resist.
0: Well, is it the answer sometimes uh- the special effect was just a reckless endangerment uh, disregard for human
1: life. <laughs> right. That is a good point. So, yeah, one of the things about these, um, the, the adventure serials that were so popular in the teens was that they tended to star young women. And the young women were asked to do all sorts of incredibly dangerous things, like, Leaping off train, you know, leaping onto trains, off of trains, off of bridges, riding motorcycles, off, um, uh, again, off uh, bridges into the river, uh, flying away in hot air balloons. I mean, all sorts of incredibly dangerous things. And part of the marketing for the adventure serials was convincing the public that these were real sometimes they were actually pretty real i mean certainly they were being asked to do some tricks that were riskier than anything that we would ask people to do now yeah. but of course movie magic also had its role to play and editing was used to make some of these tricks look more convincing but i was really fascinated by these uh early Early film stars like um, Pearl White and Helen Holmes who are starring in these adventure serials. So that they were the, they were part of the model for daring Darlene. She's a, she's a few years younger than they are, but okay, that's plausible. The other parent for her sort of fictional parent or real parent. I don't know whether I'm real or fictional at this point, but um, uh, is, a child star from the silent period, uh, whom I met, named um, Baby Peggy—that uh, was what her working name was as a small child. Um, she actually lived until this February, so she she lived to the age of 101. And she came to this silent film festival that I go to every year, um, the largest silent film festival in the world, happens every year in Italy. So who knows whether it will happen this year. Uh, But she came and and we we watched her uh, films from when she was a, a very small child acting in all sorts of different kinds of films. And she would talk about what it was like being a child star during the silent period. And it was so inspiring because you could see how brilliant she was i mean she she had been brilliant as a child what what they were asking kids to do in these films again just as they were asking a lot out of the from the adventure serial heroines they were asking a lot from the kids acting in the films they had to be able to do all sorts of things um act incredibly well follow instructions really well um it's you know it's amazing what they could do so she was also a kind of inspiration although she had, it was a child star a few years later than my Darlene because um, she was, it was the early 20s when she was in her heyday as a child star. But, um, but anyway, yeah, it was that sort of that combination of the adventure heroine and the silent film child star that I wanted to roll together into one for my Darlene.
0: Well, I'm glad that modern film does not put actors in the same amount of danger. On the other hand, um, I, I, I get tired of movies where when the action starts, the characters become, you know, like the old uh, Max Flesher Superman uh, cartoon. They, just, they, they become animated. Um, and, and I'm very aware that I'm watching a, a high-tech video game.
1: Yeah. Uh, there is something incredibly, I think, touching about um, the earlier practical film tricks. I'm just a total sucker for those, I love it. Whenever things are done, when you can see, you can almost, you can see the tape and glue holding things together. Um, You can kind of figure out how how they did something physically in order to make that object look like it disappeared or exploded or whatever. Um, I love all of those things, I love seeing in um, early stop motion animation. I love those moments when you get the ghost shadow of the animator's hand as as they're moving the teddy bears around and so on and so forth. I love all of that and I kind of um, miss that in the new films where, I mean, the special effects are amazing and what's what's accomplished now is just incredible. No, of course, it's amazing, it's incredible. It takes a huge amount of work too, so it's not like people are not working as much as they used to, they are. But I miss the flawed nature of it. (laughs) You know, the little, the sort of handmade quality that you can see in special effects in the past
0: trying to remember what the film was it was a uh was one of the special editions for jurassic park they had an early film with stop-motion dinosaurs Uh, i might have been king kong uh, but they were reading the reviews uh from both that original film plus the reviews for the new jurassic park and then jurassic world and they were almost identical with amazement so it was just who were you in the in the audience if you'd never seen anything like that that was the most amazing thing you would have ever seen at that time
1: Right. I hope that I hope that our appetite for amazement has remained broad so that we can also be amazed by things that use um, older techniques and and amazed by old film. I I do think it's still amazing. You know, I I love silent film and I think it's still very much worth uh, worth watching. And also, I love um, you know, I love stop motion animation now, like if you, uh, *Coraline* or something. It's just incredible what people were able to do there. So people, you know, it's not all computers, even though again, computer work also completely legitimate takes an immense amount of creativity and effort and all the rest and creates incredible things. So I guess I don't. I'm up for film of all sorts using all sorts of techniques. I just wouldn't want us to throw all of the old stuff overboard.
0: So you, um, obviously, between teaching uh, and, and, and and attending festivals, you clearly have this huge passion in your life for silent films. So when you sit down to work specifically on, on Daring Darlene, how much research do you still have to do, and how do you go about it?
1: Yeah, well, my... Um, film historian background was especially focused on Russian and Soviet film. So that the history of early Russian film and and Soviet film is is quite different from what was going on in um, New York and New Jersey in the teens. However, as I said, I, I went to these silent film festivals every year and would watch Literally hundreds of silent films every year brought from archives around the world, including a large number of films filmed in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So I had at least a kind of passive knowledge of what was going on in in the United States and in Fort Lee. And then I learned more when I was teaching um, the history of film, when I started teaching history of film part one. Um, and it was in fact uh as as I was teaching the the serial adventure films week for that when I thought oh you know um actually this could be a good kids book I should I should do that I've done some of the research already how about that and then I did then I really dug into it so I love doing research I mean that's that's the thing that ties my writing and my academic career together I I love digging into things and going down rabbit holes and looking at primary sources. Ah, I just love it. So I started reading a lot about Fort Lee, New Jersey, about early American film history. Um, one of the characters in the book is a real live, well, she's no longer alive, but she was at the time alive. That's Elise Guy Blaché, who was one of the first filmmakers in the world. She worked for Gaumont in the, um, starting in the 1890s. So right at the beginning of film history, she was making films of all kinds for the French uh, filmmaker. And then eventually she came to the United States with her husband who had also a Gaumont employee, and their job was to try to sell America on sound film, actually, because she had been doing a lot of experiment with sound film very, very early. In fact, it turned out to be too early and nobody could believe that that was what we really needed in films. And so that project didn't happen in the United States, but she started this, uh, this film uh, studio, Solox in Fort Lee, and it was incredibly successful. And she was you know, one of the most influential women in filmmaking for, for a period there. So I have my fictional characters get tangled up with the real, uh, real live but fictionalized Madame Blachet. So I, of course, read all sorts of biographies of Alice Guy Blachet and watched her films and um, read her autobi- autobiography. Read things about her. Um, I paid extra good attention when I was at film festivals for films set in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and you. People may have been irritated by me cheering when a film came on that was made in 1914, set in Fort Lee, and was about like a—I think it was a trolley driver. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, look at that! That's my trolley! That's my trolley!" Oh. Okay. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So I did. I did lots of research like that. I also read through um, all sorts of movie magazines from the time so fan. Fan magazines, they they were incredibly popular. They had huge numbers of people subscribing to them. So I read uh, movie star gossip and gossip about uh, films being made, gossip about Alice Guy um, And then I also focused on uh, newspapers and reading about what was going on day by day during, at, on the days that I was describing in my book, so there's a lot in the book that comes right off the front page of the New York Times from, I think it was April 12th, 1914, because the Strand Theater actually opened April 11th, 1914 and was covered in the New York Times the next day as, um, and, and in all sorts of other newspapers as well. And there were all sorts of amazing things on the front page of the New York Times on April twelfth, nineteen fourteen. I'm telling you, like the Pope coming down hard on tango. <laughs> that was that was under the fold on the front page of the New York Times. And some poor woman who'd been who had died of mercurial poisoning under under questionable circumstances, and so on and so forth. So some of that um, I snuck into the book, as well as just getting a feeling for what the weather was on any given day, how people got from Manhattan over to Fort Lee, taking the ferry, what was that like? What did the ferry look like? Were there spittoons on the ferry? Yes, there were. Um, what, was li- what was everyday life like for people who were extras in the film studios? How did the film studios run? Um, all of that, really infinite numbers of rabbit holes for me
0: to dig into. So a couple of questions about that. One, I'm, and this is something I, I ask frequently when I talk with uh, history writers, because I find that it's, it's a pretty common trait. I know when I had Avi on, uh, he let me know that he he checks the weather of every day he writes about. Um, my question is always, unless I'm looking through those papers also, I'm not going to be able to call your bluff if you tell me it was a sunny day and really it was it was rainy. Um, so is it really, is it, is it just so that you would know that that's off or?
1: Um, well, it's a mix of things, you know. Uh, part of it, so I think it's actually fine to fictionalize a lot when you're writing about the past. So when I was writing um, Orphan Band of Springdale, which just came out in paperback, by the way. Uh, Available in
0: fine bookstores everywhere as of this moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, it's set in 1941 in rural Maine, and it's based uh, loosely on my mother's childhood. She's sent to live in an orphanage run by her grandmother when things got hard for her family. And, um, And there, you know, my mother died quite young, so I didn't have access to her to get... There was no one left who actually remembered the true truth. So I had to fictionalize the whole thing. I um, even changed one letter in the name of the town to sort of as in sort of respect of the differences between my fictional version of things and the real life version of things. And yet I still went through the local paper and read through everything that happened that year and used lots and lots of that in the book. So I think whenever we're writing anything it's always a mixture of fiction and fact, but I think that digging into what happened in the past um, deepens your stories, even the fictional sides of them somehow. And you find things that you don't expect. You know, if you, it's I guess it's sort of like that uh, plotting versus pantsing uh, question again. That if you if you think you already know everything about some period and you're just gonna write the thing that you think you know, and you haven't gotten your hands dirty digging into the primary sources and reading through the local papers and everything, you won't know all the riches and strangenesses that were there waiting to be dug up. Some of them you may not use, but but they, kind, they do just add this, um, three-dimensional feeling to the historical world that you're creating i think also um at f- silent film festivals, so silent film fans and historians tend to love details so you can be sure that there are going to be people who are going to find everything i got wrong <laughs> just as you know, there are people who just know so much about silent film that, that one of the things, one of the games they used to play in this uh, big festival is they would, archivists would bring little bits of film that they found in their archive and they have no idea what it is. And they would screen those and you'd have this audience of a thousand film historians and film um, fans and so on there. And people would just shout out, oh, that's so and so. And they would know who these actors were, what studio it was, or where that outdoor location was. There are people who can recognize every building in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and tell you when it shows up in a film. And they'll go, "Okay, that was on such and such a street." Da 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 da. So I think part of that kind of infects me as well. You know, from coming out of a film historian background, you you kind you want to have because it's it's so thrilling. I really think. The The material that comes out of uh, the worlds of the past is actually fascinating in and of itself. So I love digging it up.
0: So you've got those uh, people in the back of your mind, like if I don't get this right, they are going to crucify me when I see them again.
1: <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I think, you know, I'm all right. I know I'm all right with it. It's actually, it's fine. Um, but you, But, you know, I think it's more that, in fact, I'm thinking this little, this little tidbit, <laughs> almost nobody is going to recognize what I'm really talking about here or the real thing that this is actually a reference to. But some people are going, going to be saying, oh, that's the Strand Theater. Opened April 11th, 1914. One of the most exciting theater openings, you know, of its day. Woo! Is she going to get the color scheme right in the theater? Read, 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 read. (gasps) She's got the color scheme right. She remembered the little fountains in the front of the screen. Woo! So it's going to make somebody happy.
0: Are you one of those people when you read historical fiction? Do you look for those types of details? Do they make you happy?
1: They make me happy. When I find... When I find a detail that has some resonance with um, the world, I yes, it does make me happy.
0: And just in, in, in talking to you and the amount of research and work you, you, you've you done, plus your, your background, your enthusiasm for film, the version I have, and of course I've got the advanced reader's copy, uh, there's only, only uh, 345 pages, but I get the sense you could easily have written for 700, 800 pages, maybe a 1,000. So out of all those details that you have, how are you distilling them and, and getting this into a, a tight narrative? Because it's not a history lesson, like you say there. There's uh, cliffhangers almost every chapter. You're going you to move right along. How do you distill that to make sure that you have those nice moments for the, the history buffs, plus also all the young readers that need to, to learn the history without, without making it feel like a history lesson or bogging down your narrative too much to allow for all that?
1: I guess part of it is that, okay, I don't think of historical detail as, as medicine or as the thing that you need to learn or so on. I think of it as the hidden jewel, the little treasure that you can dig up. Um, it's that's what I, I, that's what I I love that, and I think that I think that kids actually react well to that sort of thing too. If you're giving them details that are like treasures, they're not they're not things they're going to be tested on. Um, it's not about making them learn lessons for the lessons' sake. It's it's discovering how wonderful it is to dig up treasure in the past to to read about uh things that really happened, and so on so but the the question of how do you not get overwhelmed by details well of course you do get overwhelmed by details i mean that, that just happens but then once again you have the notebook so you go through your notebook um you, you have and there are all sorts of things in here that did not end up in that did not end up in the book and you know you you can't put everything you can't put everything in the book so you're just trying to give little like tips of icebergs like little kind of jewel like shining in the sun tips of really interesting historical icebergs and you just hope that some kids are going to dig a little bit further i remember being that kid reading this is not a historical book at all but reading um, Madeline Lengel's The Wind in the Door, which you may recall uh, has all this stuff about the mitochondrion in it. And I remember, how, and the mitochondrion is like a kind of world that you can go into it. I remember how thrilled I was when I found out that that was a real thing. Now, her just depiction of it wasn't real at all, <laughs> it was completely <laughs> fantastic and magical. Um, But the fact that that had a tie to this whole other story that was like the miracles of biology (laughs) meant something to me. I just love seeing that kind of tie and link and connection. So So I tend to have them in my books.
0: Out of of curiosity, just in, 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 in hearing your enthusiasm for film, Uh, and obviously um, you wouldn't be teaching it, you wouldn't be going to festivals, you wouldn't be investing your time if this wasn't something that you loved. Um, Have you ever thought of or or attempted to write a screenplay or get involved with films, or why is writing for children the preferred medium for you? Not that, obviously, I don't love writing for children. I 100% support the decision, (laughs) just out of curiosity.
1: Um, I think I particularly love writing books for kids because, uh, and, and for this sort of age group of roughly eight to roughly 14, but you know, of course could expand, but, uh, I love writing for kids because kids will fall into stories. I mean, the stories are incredibly important to them. They will, they the, the, when I think of the books that I read as a child, you know, they kind of shape me and make me who I am. And so I think there's something about the way that young people read that um, is incredibly moving to me. You know, they're, they're creating worlds when they read. And I love the idea of that energy being given to a story that um, I wrote, you know, sort of a, a symbiotic, relationship between a child's imagination and these words on a page. Um, so I think it really I love I love writing books for children. Screen writing a screenplay I think is a completely different uh skill set and I've never done it. And I know because I I have friends who write screenplays and teach screenwriting and so on. I mean, that is something you really have to know what you're about if you're doing that. It takes, a lot of, it takes a lot of work to learn how to do that well. I appreciate the products of screenwriting. I mean, I love a well-written film, but, I'm, but that's not something that I've done.
0: Well, you say that as opposed to the very easy, not in any way difficult writing a novel for children.
1: <laughs> no, writing novels for children is incredibly hard, but, but I've been doing it for ages and ages, you know. So I've, I think, what is it, the 10,000 hour thing? So I've put my 10,000 hours in. So I've learned something, I hope.
0: I always want to end while we're still having a good time. Uh, So we don't want to drag on too long. I've got about three more questions for you. Is that about And we We'll call it a night. Um, So the first question sounds kind of lazy. uh, And it is. uh, But. I've uh, always tried to do this show, and and what I have in mind is if I were going to be on a podcast talking about my book, how would I want to be interviewed? And something I would want, and I always want to extend this, uh, is what's a question you maybe haven't been asked about, Daring Darlene? What is something that you want esteemed audience to know about this book that maybe we haven't flushed out in our conversation yet?
1: Well, I think ideally it would be a question that was like a little detail from the book that I hadn't, you know, that I, I, that I didn't necessarily know was coming, but since all the little details are in some ways tips of icebergs, um, probably there's something to say. So for instance, you know, I could take the book and I could like open it randomly. Let's see what happens here. <laughs> this might not be good. Boom. Okay. Oh yeah. So I could, that was truly random. So I got to page uh, 156, and they're looking at the I can list, which is the um, studio questionnaire for actors applying to be extras at the studios. And there's all this list that says, which of the following abilities do you possess? Please check. I can ride a horse. I can swim. I can box. I can dance. I can drive a motor car. I can climb ropes. I can stand on my hands, I can wrestle, I can walk on a tightrope. I can play a musical instrument colon space to describe what instrument that is. I can dive from cliffs into a wild churning river. <laughs> and so I guess I, you know, like a little detail like that and someone could say, okay, so why is that there? Did they really have lists like that? And they can say, yes, actually they did. So uh, they, I changed around some of the items on the list but that, that kind of list of general talents—you know, can you swim? Can you box? Can you dance? Can you fence? Um, can you ride a horse? Was something that actually they did have for extras and people who wanted to work for a movie studio in the teens. Well, well, I have it be here because I gosh. have someone who's going to um, hide in plain sight by becoming an extra in a film.
0: I was just gonna say one of the, the the questions on there should be: Have you filled out your last will and testament? If not, let's make, make sure we get that done before the camera starts rolling. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, Lord knows what's gonna happen.
1: After you dive into the Churning River, and there are a lot of um, testimonials from those days about how hard it was to be an actor. I mean, not only were you asked to do all sorts of difficult things, but the pay was terrible, and often you had to supply your own costumes as well as you know paying for your ferry to get across the river from new york where you probably live to fort lee where the studio was and so on so it wasn't a really a huge money-making enterprise for most of the people in it
0: unfortunately that's completely different now <laughs> it <Moving> on
1: <laughs> right same, same same
0: um and uh and nesbitt have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them
1: So I have not personally seen a flying saucer. Every time I have looked up while backpacking and seen something that I thought must be a supernova, it has turned out to be a plane. (laughs) So, uh, and as as far as believing in them, um, I don't know what I would be being asked to believe exactly. I do think that there must be intelligent life in the universe. I really doubt that it's hanging around here yet. Uh, But somewhere, somewhere out there, there is or has been some, you know, way, some creature living in a completely, completely, completely different way than we can even imagine. I mean, I think that's the one thing about life in this universe. You keep being shown that um, everything is just infinitely more uh, surprising and strange than you could possibly have dreamed up.
0: Excellent answer. Uh, And then my last question for you is always some variation of, for all the authors listening, uh, if there was one or two bits of information you could go back and give yourself at the start of your writing career that would have made things easier for you or better for you, uh, in the hopes of making things easier or better for our esteemed audience, what would you go back and tell yourself?
1: I would. I would try to. I would try to. Um, um, I would try to send a hopeful message, <laughs> saying, you know, chin up. Um, you should just start writing. Take it seriously. Go ahead. It's all right to take it seriously. It matters, uh, and start doing that earlier. That would be fine and and don't don't be thinking that the only serious way to live is by not writing because you won't be happy that way and it's i think it's important to use use the gifts and talents that you have and also to follow your heart in some things so i i think i would encourage i would try to be encouraging of my younger self because i think i waited a little bit longer than i needed to to give it the kind of attention that I think it deserved. And then the other thing I would say is that um, to be good, a book does not have to be infinitely long. When I was first starting, I did think that the longer the better, and that was just because uh, that was what I liked. I liked a book that was really long. I figured, you know, if I were going to buy a book at a bookstore, I'd like to have a nice big, large one so that, you know, it would last for a few days, right? Um, But that turns out not to be the ticket to... A successful publishing career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you're just reading a long book. <laughs> and the pain of reading a bad book is just extended. <laughs> uh, and where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, stalk you on Twitter, all that good stuff?
1: Um, so I have a website, um, and nesbit.com. So my name, even though it sounds easy, is actually spelled strangely, A-N-N-E-N-E-S-B-E-T. Um, I joke that nobody has ever spelled it right on the first try. <laughs> but it, that is where you will find me. Uh, I've got a website, and on Twitter, I'm Ann Nesbitt, again, spelled the strange but correct way. Uh, so that's, I think, the best places to track me down. And oh, and on YouTube, you can search and see my Daring Darlene uh, video for the trailer, which I'm very proud of, even though, again, it's very homespun.
0: What uh, What should a esteemed audience search for to find that?
1: Uh, probably Daring Darlene book trailer would would do. Or you could search by my name. That would probably bring it up as well.
0: And when you find it, make sure you like and subscribe and all that good stuff. <laughs> Uh, and as always, uh, esteemed audience, check out MiddleGradeNinja.com. Find out what's going on with the show, what's going on with me. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees*. Uh, and thank you so much for uh, making the time tonight. This has been an absolute pleasure. I very much enjoyed talking with you, and your, your enthusiasm has been infectious.
1: Thank you so much. This was really, really, really fun.
0: Esteemed audience, God willing, and I'm alive. I'll see you next week.